You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. All right, I want you to close your eyes. Close them. I want you to just clear the backdrop, get a clean slate. We're going to let an image form in your mind as I say a word. Okay, here we go. Jesus. Now open your eyes. What image came to mind? Maybe images, if your brain works like mine, it just, it's hard for me to just get one picture. I see like streams of pictures. Maybe a baby on the hay. How about a two-year-old on the way to Egypt? Um, Maybe a 12-year-old reading from a scroll. Uh, Maybe a 30-year-old calling disciples to himself. How about a transfigured dude on a mountain? Ghost on the water, which ended up not being a ghost after all? How about a kneeling guy in front of a tomb saying, come forth to Lazarus? Anyone see a ripped open back from a cat of nine tails? That same man with a cross beam on his back, dead man walking. Him nailed to that cross, naked, on shameful display. How about expired, not breathing? Pale, colorless. Body temperature maybe 70, 75 degrees. Being wrapped for burial. How about on a little ledge cut out of stone inside of a dark tomb? How about someone mistaken for a gardener? How about a guy that can apparently walk through walls? Anybody envision this one? He's coming off the ground. Can he levitate? He's going up in a cloud into heaven. I can imagine everybody standing around like, oh, I'm on stage. I've got to make my my, uh, motions large. What just happened? Can I trust my eyes? Whose face did you see? about the standard painting, the blue-eyed, <laughs> blonde-haired, stop, <laughs> the blue-eyed, blonde-haired Jesus, how about Max von Sydow, the 1960s Jesus from the greatest story ever told, Robert Powell, I gave an impression of him a moment ago, from Jesus of Nazareth in the 1970s. That dude was 
I, I watched that recently. He was morose is the only word I can come up with. William Defoe, he's the last temptation of Christ Jesus in the 1980s. Jim Caviezel, Mel Gibson's Jesus in The Passion of the Christ. And of course, our latest famous Jesus, Jonathan Rumi. He's the chosen Jesus. How about descriptions? What words would you use to describe him? Several words come to mind very quickly. Savior, Lord, Teacher, Rabbi, many others. Okay, before we jump into even deeper uh, waters here, let me uh, take a minute and tell you a little bit more about myself. Uh, Some of you, more so in the first service, I think, I've not gotten to know very well over the last couple of years, so let me bring you up to speed. Um, I'm born, raised, educated, worked, everything, North Carolina. Um, I was I was born in, uh, well, I said North Carolina, Greensboro. Now you know. Um, raised in tr- near Tryon, North Carolina. When we were young, lived with my grandmother. Uh, my mom, my brother, and I lived with her. And um, we went to church there in Tryon, at Tryon United Methodist Church. And even then, God was working on my heart at a, at a young age. Um, give you a little more picture or of trying United Methodist in my family and my experience there. My mom was choir director. My dad was Sunday school superintendent. Uh, my grandmother was in the choir and my Sunday school teacher. Uh, my brother and I, we were the youth group. Uh, and I s- sung in the choir from a young age because my mom's the choir director. Um, I remember especially one of the preachers, Brian Fox, around the age of when young United Methodist children go through confirmation classes. Uh, he was just such a, such a great teacher uh, for me at, in those, at that age. But I wanted to share one experience there that was interesting, a time when I knew God was, was letting me know he existed, letting me know that he's bigger or that there's something bigger than myself out there. Um, I was looking down the hill behind the church in the wintertime, and there's no leaves on the trees, and I find myself just weeping. I'm like not even 10 years old, and I'm, I'm not really understanding what's going on, but there was something about the starkness, but yet knowing that there was life inside of those trees and that the trees would go to leave, go to leave? The trees' leaves would come out somewhere, sometime soon, and something about that life and death and the beauty of it all just overwhelmed me. And I go, what just happened? That was weird. Now fast forward into um, going to camp growing up, uh, the Methodist camp in Western North Carolina is west of Hendersonville. It's called Camp Tacoa. And I remember distinctly God continuing to, to let me know that there's something bigger, something more than meets the eye about our existence, that he is, that, that he is drawing my heart towards himself. 
things like candlelight services around the lake, uh, campfires, uh, chapel in the woods, singing songs at the campfires like uh, Pass It On. Who remembers Pass It On if you're 50 and above, 45 and above? Uh, Lord, I lift your name on high, sanctuary, you know, these kinds of songs around campfire. And I just remember just having these experiences of, God, what are you, you know, what are you doing in my life? I know you're there. Now fast forward to another one, Faith Baptist Church. So when you are, grow up a little more, you start to hang out with your friends and your friends' family, and, you know, you go to church with your friends. Now, I w- like I said, I grew up in Trine United Methodist. It's liturgy-based. It's uh, hymns and um, so on and so forth. And that was the city, Trine, all 2,000 people of it. Uh, that was the big city. But my friend, his family went to Faith Baptist Church out in Mill Spring as a country church. And I remember sitting there going, why does this guy, how does this guy know who I am? Well, he was preaching the Bible. That's all he was doing. He didn't know who I was. I was like, how does he know what I've done? Um, and I'm sitting there like my heart's just beating out of my chest as he's preaching, as he's speaking the word of God. And at the end of this, one of these services, he said, if God spoke into your heart, I want you to come up here and meet me. And I just was sitting there, all of this background and foundation and God letting me know at these different times. And I heard the word. There was a day when the Methodist church was, uh, was, was solid. I learned the word of God there through strong men and strong uh, ladies of the faith who taught us the, the Sunday school lessons. And I had the camp experiences. And yet here was something even more powerful. And he said, meet me here if God spoke into your heart. I, it was one of these kind of things that I was like, if I don't acknowledge God that you're speaking to my heart, I feel like I might just be struck down right here. It was that visceral, you know. So I was like, I got to get up and get up there. I had no idea that that was a thing, right, where you walk the aisle and meet the pastor up front. All I know is he said, come if God's spoken to you. So I went up. And I just remember being down at the altar. He opened the book and turned to Romans 10. And I'm sitting there not really sure what's going on. My mind is being opened up, and I'm starting to understand and see things that are frightening and yet draws me in at the same time. And he says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, I'll tell you why I knew I needed to be saved. God, it was like he took me by the nape of my neck and he showed me myself. And I was like, whoa. And I'm only like 12, 13 years old, maybe, maybe 13, somewhere like that. And I knew that the sin that I had committed, the, the, the darkness in my heart, I knew that was a real thing. But somehow, as I look back on it, I realized he kind of opened my mind to what I haven't even experienced in my life yet. He put like my whole life of sin in front of me. And it crushed me. 
And then he took me and showed me himself. And I thought I had been crushed by looking at myself. Wait a second. Did I just say he showed me myself? He showed me himself. And I thought I was crushed over here looking at me, but then he showed me his perfection, his holiness. And I was completely undone. And it was just like we read in scriptures. What am I to do? Oh my gosh, woe is me. And that I was experiencing this as a young, kind of coming to age young person, I, I just couldn't understand what was going on. And yet I understand, I understood completely for the first time that there was something really, really wrong with my life. And I said, what am I going to do? And then he took me and showed me Jesus. I remember distinctly, me, him, and his holiness. And then the answer to the question that has to arise when you see this, Jesus. And I'm overcome, and I can do the only thing that is possible at that moment. It's acknowledge that he is Lord. And want him to be Lord of my life. So, that was that. (laughs) Where am I? Okay, high school was a blur after that. In a nutshell, it's just back and forth spiritually. Satan is whispering to me all the time. Did that really happen? And I don't know that I really questioned whether I could lose my salvation, but it was more like, Am I really saved? Can the devil really get me? And I thought he could. That's, that was what I remember from high school. I just thought he could snatch me up at any moment. And just back and forth, back and forth. And going on into college, my freshman year, I don't know how, but ironically, I was more spiritually disciplined than ever. Um, but I kept an area or two of my life kind of just over here out of sight. From God, tried to, thinking I was keeping it out of sight from God. Keeping it out of sight from myself, lying to myself. Definitely keeping it out of sight from my spiritual friends. One of whom was Keisha. Now, go fast forward to our sophomore year. Um, God revealed himself to us by letting us know that we needed to begin dating. Uh, that's another story. We can unpack that at another time. And from there, we were with friends with whom we learned Scripture through the rest of college uh, years there and, and just lived our lives figuring out how to be an adult, you know, responsible for our own faith. We were married. We moved to the mountains. Um, we went to the Long's Chapel United Methodist Church near Lake Junaluska. We moved in 97 down to Fuquay. We were at Wake Chapel for uh, three years. Um, in that time, we found a house in Harnett County. That's, now you're up to speed as to why I'm here. Um, and this was all around jobs, teaching jobs and so forth that we had found. And after about three years, we were drawn to Grace Community Church, where we uh, led music for about three years while we were over in the uh, school then I was asked to be one of the first deacons on the, when the deacon, uh, group of deacons was first formed at 
for Grace Community Church, had elders at that time, but no deacons. So after that, some years, I was, um, came on as elder. Keisha's been on staff for, what do we say, 17 years now, something like that? We don't know. We're losing. It's all going in the backdrop there. All our children were born here, baptized right here on this stage. Um, now, in recent years, even after all of that foundation, God revealing himself to me as true, me wondering, then coming to our own, coming into our own as adults, marriage, children, all these years, progressively um, more involved in ministry and, and so on and so forth. Ironically, I've been taken through some times where I've questioned more than I ever have questioned and struggled at a depth that I didn't know existed. And then I would do it all over again at an even more gut-wrenching level. So that brings us up to this morning. Uh, when asked about preaching this summer, um, I knew immediately what I wanted to share because earlier in the year, I shared at a friend's church down below Dunn, and in thinking about what to preach there, because I didn't know where, where they were in their teaching series or anything like that, I didn't know what you know needed to be taught to at you know at that time for for that congregation. So I asked, well, what do I do? And God just simply said, proclaim me. And I like the idea of that for many, many reasons. But I wanted to set that stage so that you understood that when this proclaim me encouragement came, it came in the middle of this deep, gut-wrenching, grieving time where I'm questioning, have I learned, or what I've learned over all these years and been involved with and just given our lives over to, what is it all about? Is this a guy that can truly be trusted? Is he who he says he is? Honestly, I'm struggling with it. But the idea of proclamation leads me to Luke 10. I love, love that, where... This is where Jesus sends out the 72 other disciples to towns that he plans to go and visit, and he gives them several instructions. But I'd like to point out a particular part of the message that he gave. He said, if a town welcomes you, tell them the kingdom of God is near you now. If a town refuses to welcome you, say, amongst other things, the kingdom of God is near. So the kingdom is proclaimed to be here now by these guys, or at least it's very eminently close, right? And it didn't matter if you were welcome, welcoming the kingdom or, or spurning, spurning, is that a word? Spurning the kingdom. The, the message was the kingdom is near. For some, it was like, the kingdom is near. Others, it was like, the kingdom's near. Okay? It's coming. 
You don't get a choice. And a kingdom indicates a king, right? So the king must also be here. Or at least almost here. Who is this king? Is a very natural question to ask. What is he like? What should I do about it? How should I think? How should I get prepared? These are always appropriate questions to ask, no matter how young you are. Like my eight-ish, nine-ish year old experience with like, what just happened and who is this that's speaking in this way to me? No matter how young or how old you are in the faith, um, it's a good question to ask. No matter how little or much you've read the Bible, it's a great question to ask. Who is this king? And I find there are two places to go to answer this. Personal experience, like I've shared a few of these of, you know, in, my, in my past. And then, of course, Scripture. The personal experience side is the visceral, right? It's, it's the connection that lets us know there's something more than meets the eye to this world. That is the biggest question in the, the idea and of what a worldview is, the very first question is, is there more to this than meets the eye? What you think about that dictates which direction you go in your um, belief or not belief about, eventually about Jesus being the Messiah, the one and only Son of the living God. The first question in that thought process, is there more than meets the eye? I was convinced there was more than meets the eye because of God's encounter with, with me, his, my encounter with him. He'd made that fairly clear. But just, to, just like dreams and images kind of fade, and it's tough to get your mind around what just was experienced, and it's hard to describe the images, you don't want to build a theology, you don't want to build a message you don't want to answer this question completely on your personal experience. You want to go to the scriptures to vet it, to be able to put your finger on it and, and know that you're precise and accurate. And it helps you understand those personal experiences as well, right? So these are the two places, this personal experience and then the scriptures. So asking myself afresh, who is this king? I've shared a few personal experiences. I'll share one more. I mentioned the times this past couple of years of deep sorrow, deep grieving, deep darkness. And I heard a song on the way to work one morning. Uh, anyone heard Stephen Curtis Chapman's Till the Blue? I got a yes here. It's something You need to listen to it. Well, I was listening to Till the Blue, and I barely made it into work. And then I just had to sit there, really hunch over there in my car for some time before I could even get out as this song played. I wrote Stephen Curtis Chapman a letter uh, about my experience in listening to this song, and I'll give you an excerpt from that letter. 
I heard groans and cries coming from deep within my bowels, sounds that I didn't realize could be made. An uncontrollable clenching and releasing like dry heaves came, across, came upon me. My mind was open for a few moments longer than I really would have chosen, but in a way that made me long for more at the same time. I experienced God's infinitude, his transcendence, and eminence down to my toes. That I didn't believe, that I wanted to believe, and that he was indeed capable and powerful landed on me and almost crushed my heart. My unworthiness and shame neither was standing in Jesus' way nor keeping him from wrapping his arms around me and letting me know that, no, it's not supposed to be this way. There are really no words for this moment, but I'm here, and I will stay right here until it's clear again one day. I love you. I haven't left or forsaken you. See, the song is about a friend who comes beside one who is grieving on a cloudy and dark day, and he just says, I'll be here with you until the clouds roll back, until the blue skies come again. And again, I'm asking, who is this king? So God saying, simply proclaim me, drives me to the scriptures. And as expected by the background I gave you, the word of God is integral to our lives. I've been taught it all my life. In fact, I wonder whether I might have received even as, two, as much as two or three lessons a week on average for many of the years I've been on this earth. I've given a lot of lessons as well. There's not a page of the Bible that I've not personally read three to five times, um, with many pages hundreds of times. Read them in the NIV, the SIV, the RSV, the NLT, the LMNOP, <laughs> lots of versions. Even struggled to try to read some in foreign languages. The Word of God is, is integral to our life. And learning it is something I'm, you know, I know I should be doing as a, as a believer and have been doing. And somewhere along the way and over time, I began to understand, though, that what I'm learning is a, is a, is a person. What I'm learning about is Jesus. I've learned that not only is he on every page, but he is every page. He's every word. We would do well to remember that he is infinite. Not only with respect to time, but also sheer depth and magnitude. Though our minds can conceive and picture him, they cannot fully contain him or understand him. So I proclaim the Jesus that has been revealed to us from cover to cover. Remember the list we came up with, our, with earlier in our heads? That's a great list. It's extremely accurate. And I, I suspect, though, that most of what we thought about is contained in the four Gospels. Why wouldn't it be? That's where he met with us. That's God with us. He condescended 
to help us to understand who he is. So it's very natural that we would go there. But my, I should say, and my awe of him is deepened, though, when I remember that he is indeed revealed from cover to cover. Now, I think there are aspects of himself that he's chosen not to reveal to us, but wow, has he revealed so much about himself through the scriptures that we have. And what an amazing view. He's, he's pulled back the curtain to let us see some pretty amazing things. So this morning as we stand back and consider the, the view, I simply ask that you apply yourself to these images of Jesus by simply marveling. And I'm confident that it will produce in us the same thing that it has always produced in his people, and that's worship. He's the spirit that hovers over the deep. An audible voice. There's a lot of speaking and conversation that he does with the patriarchs. It simply says, Noah talked with him. It was a conversation. I, I expect that was an audible voice. We see him as a scatterer and confuser at Babel. He's the sender of plagues. He shows up in an interesting way in Melchizedek. It may or may not be a revelation of Jesus himself, but he's definitely a precursor that Jesus uses, that Hebrews uses later to point out and reveal that he's a priest and a king. He's a smoking pot and a flaming torch passing through an animal that's been split in half during a terrible darkness in which a peculiar covenant was made with Abraham. El Shaddai, God Almighty. He shows up as three men near an oak grove. He's the judge of all the earth. He's a ram in the thicket, a ladder or a stairway to heaven. In the Old Testament, he's standing at the top of the stairway. In the New Testament, he's revealed as the stairway itself. He's a wrestler. He shows up in the blazing fire in the middle of a bush. I am who I am. Y-H-W-H, Jehovah, Lord. Angel of death that passes over blood-stained door frames. Or at least the one directing the angel of death. He's a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. A divider of the sea and of the river. Remember Joshua passed on dry ground as well, into the promised land, crossing the Jordan. We see him as a sustainer, a provider of bread, meat, and water in the wilderness, a lawgiver. We see him as a protector and a shield from his own glorious presence. 
when he placed his hand over Moses and passed by. And then as he passed by, removed his hand and let Moses see the, the glory that, that was trailing behind him so that he would not die from seeing his face. He's the fire that consumed meat and bread before Gideon. Peace. The Lord is peace is what Gideon named that place after he saw the Lord's face and yet was not or was told that he would not die. Kinsman, redeemer, the very breath of life. Elijah and the widow witnessed her son's life restored. He's the sender of fire from heaven. It flashed from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. All the water was gone. So I meant to say earlier, these images that we're, that we're going through, if something is uh, depicted that you've not heard before, just write down the image and then go look it up. Go find where these came from. In addition to fire from heaven, he's the sender also of windstorms and earthquakes. And here we learn something interesting. All the smoke, clouds, fires, quakes, wind go before him. But then he speaks to Elijah in a gentle whisper. His infinity, magnitude, Glory and greatness that shows itself in such miraculous power where everything just, just goes before him. Everything gets out of the way because his glory is so powerful. Kind of lays down like a carpet for him to process in on. Even with all of that power, he shows us an amazing grace and a gentleness in dealing with his chosen ones. Firstly, in shielding us from himself, but then also in his gentle exercise of his power toward us. Sender of fiery chariots drawn by horses of fire. In fact, sender may be better stated the Lord of heaven's armies. Everybody's familiar with the Words, the Lord of hosts, we hear that a lot in the versions that we read. The New Living Translation translates that as the Lord of heaven's armies. I love that image. See, at Elisha's prayer for the Lord to open this young man's eyes, the Lord revealed to this young man that he is always near. And he command, commands uncountable legions who are always on the ready. Moving ahead, when I consider the first chapter of Job, I have trouble describing exactly how God has revealed himself here. I grope for words like controller of every angel, of every demon, every man, every element, every destiny and power. When I'm feeling like uh, strong in my faith and and everything's going well, I look, at, I look at this chapter and go, God's sovereign. But when I'm weak and questioning, 
and struggling with those big why questions? Like, why are you letting our children fall victim to a ruthless culture? So much so as to break us. I'm not sure exactly what words to use, honestly. He appears to do Satan's will here. God boasts in Job. Satan accuses. God says, okay, have Adam. And much suffering comes. And it was bad. Have you ever come across such suffering that you sat with a person for seven days without saying a word? That's what Job's friend did. Job's friends did initially. That's bad. But then something happens in the human nature. After those seven days, this experience is kind of, kind of fleeing, fleeting a little bit, and our human nature arises in us, and we resemble Satan more than we do the image of God that's in us, and our hearts begin to become prideful and become to, begin to become accusatory And it took some time, and God was silent through all of this listening. But Job kind of started to lean there as his friends and his wife, and everybody said, curse God and die. Job was going, nope. He went, should I? God, you know. And God was silent until chapter 38. And God decided to reveal himself to Job. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. The whirlwind. Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man. Because I have some questions for you. And you must answer them. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone? Who laid its cornerstone as the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst from the womb? And as I clothed it with clouds and wrapped it in thick darkness, for I locked it behind barred gates, limiting its shores, I said, this far and no further will you come. Here your proud ways must stop. Have you ever commanded the morning to appear and caused the dawn to rise in the east, Job? Have you made daylight spread to the ends of the earth to bring an end to the night's wickedness? Ricky, have you? As the light approaches, the earth takes shape like clay pressed beneath a seal. It's robed in brilliant colors. The first service I just kept reading, all of chapter 38. I think we all should be subjected 
to these kinds of questions at times in our life where we can't get out from under them. Just like Job, he had to sit there and listen. Um, but I'm going to skip ahead for time's sake. In chapter 39, God doesn't stop. Job is cut to the quick. He realizes he has nothing more to say, and God still doesn't stop. He says once again, brace yourself like a man. Job, you think you know me? And he continues to reveal himself. And as you can see, I've learned to read these chapters fast because I imagine God unleashing revelation unrelentingly, overwhelmingly. And however Job heard it, it produced in the man the only possible response. I thought I knew. And now that I know I know nothing, you're too wonderful for me. The things I have said while puffed up, I take it all back. I sit in dust and ashes. And just lest we focus on Job too much, don't stop reading. By the end of the book, the Lord has revealed himself as a restorer, full of blessing, not withholding any good thing. He has binded up the brokenness and provided comfort and fortune. He is the one that will show mercy on whom he will and compassion to anyone he chooses. Who is this king? He reveals himself as a shepherd, our refuge and strength, our fortress, a lover and a poet. Of his beloved, he says, your teeth are as white as sheep that are freshly washed. Your smile is flawless, each tooth matched with its twin. Your cheeks are like rosy pomegranates behind your veil. That one would never work where I come from. It would come out kind of like, you sure do got pretty teeth. Uh, it kind of loses its poetic quality there, you know. Um, on into Isaiah, we see him sitting on a throne with the train of his robe filling the, filling the temple. We see in here six-winged beings, and by virtue of them covering their face and covering their feet with their wings... And using their thunderous voices to proclaim the holiness and glory of the Lord of Heaven's armies. We understand as much as we can that the power of the presence of the one on the throne is enough to kill anyone who would look on it. But in the same scene, we see that this King and Lord is gracious and making a way to meet with Isaiah by having the burning coal touch his lips. Further in Isaiah, we see an obedient, a righteous, a suffering, despised, rejected, sorrowful, grieving servant king and Lord. So I pointed out that he has revealed himself as the Lord of heaven's armies, but he also shows that he's the Lord of the armies of the earth. He uses them to bring destruction to his people. 
In Lamentations, he reveals himself as a dark shadow over beautiful Jerusalem that he will destroy. Yet a few pages later, he shows that he still instills hope in those who seek him. Chapter 3, starting in verse 20, Jeremiah says, I will never forget this awful time as I grieve over my loss. Yet I still dare to hope when I remember this, the faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. I say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance. Therefore, I will hope in him. And a bit later, for no one is abandoned by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he also shows compassion because of his greatness the greatness of his unfailing love, for he does not enjoy hurting people or causing them sorrow. In Ezekiel, we read about a just wild and crazy scene. As I looked, I saw a great storm coming from the north, driving before it, a huge cloud that flashed with lightning and shone with brilliant light. There was fire inside the cloud, and in the middle of the fire glowed something like gleaming amber. From the center of the cloud came four living beings that looked human, except that each had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, and their feet had hooves like those of a calf and shone like burnished bronze. Under each of their four wings, I could see human hands. So each of the four beings had four faces and four wings. And the description of the wings and the faces and the the wheels. Let's go to the wheels. One more. As I looked at the beings, I saw four wheels touching the ground beside them. One wheel belonging to each The wheels sparkled as if made of beryl. All four wheels looked alike and were made the same. Each wheel had a second wheel turning crosswise within it. The beings could move in any of the four directions they faced without turning as they moved. The rims of the four wheels were tall and frightening, and they were covered with eyes all around. We've not even gotten to Jesus yet. These are the beings around Jesus. And I encourage you to go back and read about this scene from Ezekiel 1. But I'm going to review a little bit here. So there's a great storm. A huge cloud is driven before the presence of the Lord. Lightning flashed. Fire glowed. This description of the living beings and their wheels. What amazingly wild characteristics. Now, let's challenge our minds to go beyond these beings to the one whose throne they convey. If these are so amazingly wild in this powerful imagery that we see, how absolutely and singularly glorious must be the one who they worship. 
So you'll see in Ezekiel 1, above the creature's wings, above the sky-like surface resting on those wings, and high above the throne that was above the glittering crystal sky surface was a figure whose appearance resembled a man. It was gleaming amber, like flickering like fire, a burning flame shining with splendor. Around him, a glowing halo shining like a rainbow on a rainy day. This is what the glory of the Lord looked like to Ezekiel. And this is where he fell face down. But heard a voice saying, stand up. It was the spirit that came into him that set him on his feet. And to Ezekiel, he reveals himself as a sender. A sender of his chosen people to convey his message. He fed Ezekiel a scroll and told him to speak its message to his people of Israel. After revealing himself in a very similar way to John in Revelation, he gave John a scroll to eat. And just like Ezekiel, the words of God were as sweet as honey going in, but they produced bitterness and turmoil for Ezekiel, and they turned John's stomach sour. Who is this king? He's the one appearing in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, of whom Nebuchadnezzar said, and the fourth is like a god. His presence in the fire protected them from harm. He showed himself to Amos as a building inspector a wall that had been built with a plumb line to see if it was still straight was what the building inspector was me measuring. Zechariah says, look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey. And from there in chapter 9 to the end of the book, he describes the Lord of Heaven's armies as a destroyer, a restorer, a conqueror, a shepherd, a comforter, a cornerstone, scatterer, gatherer, ruler of the elements and the beasts, sovereign in power, the only one worthy of worship. He will have his way. Malachi speaks of the day of judgment, bringing destruction to the arrogant, but for those who fear God, he will be revealed as the son of righteousness that will rise with healing in his wings. So much time could be spent reading, meditating, and commenting, and worshiping. Like I said earlier, or asked earlier, who is this king? It's a question with an unending answer. So it's really difficult to wrap a message about him like this up. But let's let the words of John suffice for us, listen and worship deeply. From Revelation 1, when I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands, and standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were were like flames of fire, his feet like polished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. 
He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth. His face was like the sun in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I'm alive forever and ever. From chapters 4 and 5, the one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones like jasper and carnelian. And the glow of an emerald encircled his throne like a rainbow. Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. And from chapter 19, then I saw heaven opened and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. The armies of heaven dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp, sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from a wine press. On his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And from chapter 22, look, I am coming soon, bringing my reward with me to repay all people according to their deeds. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this message for the churches. I am both the source of David and the heir to his throne. I am the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears this say, come. Let anyone who is thirsty, come. Let anyone who desires drink freely from the water of life. I don't know how young or old you are in the faith. I don't know how many times you have or haven't read any portion of Scripture. I don't know what kind of personal experiences or encounters that you may or may not have had with this king. But I know this morning, he says, come. He is a great and mighty king. There is none that stand before him. We've seen him reveal himself through scripture this morning. Let it lead us to do what everyone who encounters this king has done. Bow before him. Give our lives over to him. Whether it's the first time or whether it's the thousandth time again afresh. And let this great king, the, the image, images that he's given 
of us or of him to us. Let us say with the churches here and with the Spirit, come, Lord, Lord Jesus. Amen. We worship you. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.